0: From the same station that invented radio with subtitles.
1: This is the elixir
0: of eternal youth. A worldly story told by a group of travellers. A history of Brisbane, Australia and the world.
2: This is Radio in Colour.
0: A special documentary series to celebrate
1: four decades of Brisbane's...
2: Four, 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 four. four. Triple. triple, triple, Z.
3: Today in Radio and Colour, we hear stories about how, almost by surprise, the world of politics changed towards the end of the 1980s. For a long time it felt as though decades of repression and conservatism wouldn't budge in Queensland or in Eastern Europe, but come the late 1980s the prospects for change were dramatically improved. 1987 was the beginning of the National Party's long-awaited end. Queensland was about to change, as was the whole of the Western world from Brisbane to East Berlin via Poland, we are travelling east in our episode today. We'll finish on the massacre of Tiananmen Square in Beijing and the Australian government's snap decision to offer asylum to 16,000 international students who may not have felt safe returning home. In 1987, Joe Bjorki Pearson took a trip to Disneyland and got stuck there while his government's corruption was exposed at length by the ABC's Moonlight State documentary.
4: Tonight's program may give
2: some clue as to why certain people in the Sunshine State, particularly in its police force, could be reluctant to have outside investigators probing their patch.
5: There is a cooperative of ownership, of management of the unlicensed nightclubs, the massage parlours, the escort agencies and the illegal casinos. There's a strong case to show that instead of prosecuting these people, the police prefer to protect them.
3: I'm reading an excerpt from Andrew Stafford's book, Pig City. With Bjorki Peterson Interstate drumming up support for his doomed Canberra campaign, Bill Gunn was the acting premier. The stolid Gunn was marked by a will matching his artlessness. Without consulting his absent superior, he made the remarkable decision to hold an independent inquiry with the words, A series of police ministers have had these types of allegations hanging over their heads. They are not going to hang over mine. When an alarmed Bjorki Peterson later told him he had a tiger by the tail, Gunn was unperturbed. He said... I'm not worried about that, Joe. It'll end up eating you, if anything. The scale and publicity of the new revelations meant that for the first time, the political damage of suppressing information, at least in Gunn's mind, outweighed the danger of taking action. The next six months was the most turbulent period of Queensland's political history. The appointment of Gerald Tony Fitzgerald QC to head the inquiry and the granting of some critical indemnities from prosecution ensured that the focus remained not on securing as many convictions as possible, but on pulling the rug out from the whole rotten system. The media and public gorged on the daily diet of increasing gross revelations. The inquiry took on a life of its own. Fitzgerald's frequent requests for wider terms of reference were meekly granted, to the point where, in the end, there were virtually no terms of reference at all. Two days after leaving on a business trip to the US, Bjorki Peterson was caught off guard on another front. Capitalising on the disarray in the Federal Coalition ranks, Prime Minister Bob Hawke called an early election. Bjorki Peterson had already engineered the Coalition's destruction with his Canberra push, declaring that he alone would now lead the National Party. But when Hawke played his ace, Bjorki Peterson, ruined in of all places Disneyland, had not even nominated for a seat, much less resigned his premiership. Labor won the election easily, winning four extra seats in Queensland alone. Formal hearings for the Fitzgerald Inquiry began two weeks later. They would continue for another 18 months. In the end, a system that looked invulnerable unraveled remarkably quickly. What was it like to live in the 1980s? Queensland in the 1980s was hot, boring and reeked of political corruption for the young people that lived in it. Despite the stink, or maybe because of it, political satire met its zenith, with Premier Joby Ockie-Piersson providing a wealth of material for the aspiring comedian. In the 1980s, the 4 Z newsroom specialised in catching the Premier off guard with regular phone calls to his home. Some bizarre and hilarious interviews resulted.
6: Oh, hello? Hello, Mr. Peterson. Yes? It's Claire Granite from 4 Z here. Yes, Look, yes. I was wondering how you were feeling on the eve of your 76th birthday.
5: Well, I feel very fit, very well. I'm all just ready, just waiting for the plane to take me to Brisbane.
6: How long do you think you can keep going?
5: Oh, well, that's something that I couldn't tell you. In our future, I always say, is like, in God's end, What uh, We can't foresee it. He can. We can't. And I take each day at a time.
6: And and what about your plans for the new space centre in Queensland? When well, I'm very. I'm
5: think... um, talking having some long talks of today with the Japanese minister, who's one of the very top ones in the Japanese government. Uh, we support any any concept like that, which can be a mutual benefit to our two countries.
6: Could We're... you see it launching space shuttles?
5: No, 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 no. It's not for that. That's up in Cape York.
6: Yeah, that's the one I'm talking about. Would you like to go up into a space shuttle? Well, I, I don't mind in
5: the slightest, but I guess I wouldn't have much chance because there would be so many keen, young, enthusiastic people that are probably at a greater peak of physical fitness than myself. And I think it has to be for some young people who can, or younger men, who can, uh, well, utilise the knowledge and skills they and, and the information they'd gather on a trip like that. So. I guess that's for somebody else.
6: So have you got any sort of final birthday message?
5: Well, I my final birthday message is today, let's all do everything we can to, well, make Australia a better place to live and to work in and to uh, try and live, uh, well, reasonably, peacefully one with the other. And when I say that, I talk in terms of militant union leaders who always seem to be looking for trouble and uh, why we've got to put a rather heavy hand on them Uh, to, well, curb their their enthusiasm, to show their power and their might.
6: Okay, thanks, Mr. Paterson. Have a good trip. I now declare World Expo 88 well and truly open.
3: We hear from Australian National University historian Frank Bongiorno, whose book, The 80s, A Decade That Transformed Australia, examines the impact of this era on the national psyche.
7: It was often a fantasy, though, was it? Yes. I mean, there was this idea that, you know, the world was watching, um, uh, you know, we'll show the world, uh, that sort of idea around Expo and indeed a number of other Sort of, uh, I guess, cultural events, including the bicentenary in, in general. But the reality is, these things were mainly for local consumption. I mean, most of those who went to Expo were from southeastern Queensland. I mean, they did surveys and 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 uh, and found that you know essentially most visitors were multiple visitors from Brisbane or its uh, its surrounds. And and so really, they were showing uh, Queensland and the world to themselves in a lot of ways. And. Um, of course, Expo, you know, there's a whole tradition of the exposition that goes right back to the 19th century, of course, you know, the very famous one in, in England in, in um, the, the mid-19th century, the 1850s. Um, and, and it's meant to be a, a thoroughly international uh, sort of occasion, but in, in the case of Expo 88, it became very much about, you know, showing, uh, showing off Queensland and giving a particular image of Queensland that was kind of both technologically modern and, and cosmopolitan and sophisticated on the one hand, but also this place of fun and sunshine and all all the rest on the other, and also a rural image too, which I think was retained in uh, in, in in you know the expo uh, experience. Um, so, yeah, it was it was very much about this idea of showcasing Brisbane. But it's it's been remembered clearly by a lot of people since as a real turning point in the history of particularly Brisbane and uh, and 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 Queensland more generally. You know this notion of coming of age and all the rest of it.
1: nations,
7: achievements, sensations. It's gonna be great and I just can't wait. It's gonna be great and I just can't wait. Well, Expo, very ironically, of course, was, was happening at the very same time as the Fitzgerald Commission inquiry was going on. So they're happening side by side. And so you had these, I guess, these two images of Brisbane, you know, that were kind of there for consumption every day, really, uh, during 1988. Um, So that too, I think, is important. I mean, the fall of Bjorki-Peterson, which happens at the end of 1987, is obviously a, an important moment, I guess, in the ways in which Queensland and Queenslanders um, see themselves. And that I think one of the effects of both that combination of Expo and the end of National Party rule was I think less of a sense of Queenslanders being different. I think, you know, I, I make the point that, I th- that Queenslanders became more like other Australians in a whole range of ways. And I think that's true if you walk around Brisbane today. It's a very different kind of place to the city I saw for the first time actually in 1988. It looks more like other Australian cities uh, and and it has a feel. And indeed the, the politics of Queensland, while still distinctive, are also I think more like the politics of other places than they were back then. In retrospect, you can see the way in which an old order was crumbling in the 1980s. Because, yes, on the one hand, you had a National Party government. Indeed, it was a purely National Party government for much of that period. They they were able to govern without the support of even the Liberal Party from, from 1983 onwards. And that was obviously a party whose power rested on the country and indeed on a, an electoral system that advantaged uh, rural voters. Um, its economic uh, bases were coal, I mean the, it's not very well known. Coal was Australia's major export during that period and Queensland was was central to the coal industry and BHP's uh, Queensland Coal Operations, which had been Utah, were, were you know really central to the power, the continuing power of, of national party government in Queensland. And so you had all that on the one hand, and yet you also had operating alongside it this increasingly glitzy, sexy, corrupt world based on tourism, based on a whole range of illegal industries (laughs) also happening at the same time. And there was a sense in which something had to give. I mean, how, how could you have this highly moral Lutheran premier presiding over, on the one hand, you know, this kind of homely image of Queensland, you know, the old-fashioned virtues and all the rest of it, and on the other, this, this um, you know, rather, I guess, combination of glamour and corruption that underpinned the new Queensland. Uh, Jupiter's Casino, of course, opens in the mid-'80s. You know, it, it too was, you know, really a, a monument, I suppose, to the kind of the new vision of Queensland that was opening up and, ironically, being promoted by the National Party. Another aspect of all this, of course, was you know the, the, the growing uh, prominence of Japanese investment in in this period, so most evident um, at Surface Paradise and the Gold Coast more generally but also increasingly up north in places like Cairns. And, and uh, you know, that too was in some ways an odd development for a state that prided itself on its conservatism and which people had long memories of the Second World War. So there was a whole lot of almost contradictory things happening in Queensland in, in the 80s. And you can, in retrospect, see the way in which this was gradually I guess destabilising what had been a quite conservative and stable order, or well in some ways extending right back even before Bjorki Peterson was there.
4: I you think know, it was only when the, things got totally crazy, like the Joe for PM campaign, and, uh, you know, the, the rampant corruption became too hard to ignore. The thing that triggered it off was about illegal casinos and brothels in Fortitude Valley. It's not like that was actually a secret. It was why well, the police would close the streets so that guy could get his casino, you know, roulette table into this casino. So it's not like they were hiding. Uh, they were just so blase and so cocky that they didn't need to hide. Uh, so people knew. I, I think eventually people couldn't keep pretending that they didn't know because it's just got too much publicity and then. And given Joe, Bill Peterson always portrayed himself as this, you know, fine, upstanding, right-doing Christian, you know, having his police force taking piles of bribes for brothels. just looked a bit too hypocritical, even for conservative Queenslanders.
3: Brisbane really sucked for a lot of young people in the 1980s. Nasima Mustafa told Feds Ellie Freeman about it.
8: My name is Nasima Mustafa. I was born in South Africa in Johannesburg and I migrated with my parents when I was a young child. I was seven years old, back in the 70s. I've done all my primary, high and tertiary education in Australia, and we've always lived in Brisbane. You mentioned in your bio that when you came to Australia in the 80s, you sometimes wish you'd stayed in South Africa despite leaving during apartheid, and I wanted to know what was Brisbane like when you first came here? When I was growing up, I remember the only other ethnic group other than, you know, white Australians were um, Vietnamese. And that was just soon after the Vietnam War and the Vietnamese were coming through on boats. There was a lot of fear about some Asian invasion. Talk would always be going on in the media. It was very difficult growing up as a person of colour in the 80s and even more difficult growing up as a Muslim simply because there was very little understanding of cultural diversity I went to Ascot State Primary School for primary and I went to St. Margaret's Anglican School for high. In both schools, you could probably count on one hand how many people of colour there were in both of those schools. I especially was subjected to a lot of bullying in primary school I would often be called an aborigine, but the derogatory way of calling an Aborigine. My high school too, I felt very isolated simply because uh, the peers would be doing things like having slumber parties and going to discos and have boyfriends and because I was Muslim I wasn't allowed any of those things or if you went on an excursion and they would dress up in shorts and I had to wear my long skirts and fully covered, all that sort of thing. So it was extremely difficult and I remember at times when I refused to speak my mother tongue and and would try my best to sort of really, really fit in with the rest of the the group so that I would be accepted and that I would have friends. I remember going through high school with having one close friend and not because she particularly understood my culture or anything, but she was just friendly with me. I found that the social isolation was the biggest factor for me. I used to get very, very depressed, hated schooling and swore to myself um, that I would never, ever raise my children in Australia. I remember telling my parents at one stage, why did you move to Australia? And they said, for a better future for, for you kids. And I said, what do you mean by that? Because there's no better future here for us, at least in South Africa. I knew where I belonged. I belonged in an Indian community. I um, I was accepted and I was embraced. Over here, I just didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. The most difficult thing that I encountered growing up here is having to um, really try and be Australian when you're at school so that you'd be accepted by your friends and that you'd fit in somewhat. Um, and then as soon as you come home and your door shut, you you have to be a totally different person because your values are different, your religion's different, your food's different, everything about you is different, your language and everything. So, for a child growing up, I found that incredibly difficult because, as it is, you struggle with identity when you're going through adolescence, and this just made it that much worse. And I used to say to my parents, I wish you would just go back to South Africa. So, you would have been in Brisbane during the 80s during um, the infamous uh, Joe Biocchi. Peterson government, which uh, I've been personally reading a lot about lately. So that was a pretty oppressive time for pretty much everyone. But I guess I've only read the, I suppose, mainstream account of that. What, What was it like for you growing up in that time where like a lot of people was scared. Well, as a child, I can't say that I had any awareness whatsoever of politics or what he was like as a leader or anything like that. But I can definitely say that um, there was very little tolerance, acceptance or even awareness of other cultures and uh, religions or races. I just felt that it was a very racist government. You know, everything about living in Australia was, was racist and was targeted at people who were a minority. So that's probably all I can say as far as policy is concerned. How have you seen cultural understanding in Brisbane change over time? My children are at Warrigal Road State School. I have a nine-year-old and I have a little one who's going to be starting school day next year who currently goes to the Montessori Garden in Underwood and I find that um, I'll talk about the little one's environment first of all. It's incredibly diverse the um, demographics of people who attend the Montessori are really a mixture of everyone and there's such a, a huge embrace of cultural diversity there and there's a celebration of all the different festivities from Chinese New Year, Hanukkah to Eid and Ramadan and there's a lot of awareness of Easter Christmas. So there's this beautiful spirit of harmonizing the children who attend there and and you know creating an awareness of each different child's background my child my 9 year old is very proud to be muslim he's very proud that he's got a brown skin colour. He has none of the hang-ups that I had when I was young about wanting to hide away and run away from your identity. He will even take his prayer mat to school and put it out in the playground and pray when he wants to. Sometimes he feels a bit uncomfortable because he gets stared at, but not to say that he feels afraid or bullied. He's not. And I'm very, very grateful that it is different for my children now. How about for yourself as an adult? I would say that myself, as a person, has come a very long way because I have educated myself more about other cultures. And I must say that having gone to um, an Anglican, predominantly um, white Australian school, did a lot for me. It's really opened my mind. It's allowed me to understand the majority belief system and, you know, way of thinking. And I find that just by having that Christian education that I am able to integrate a lot easier and to also build friendships and socialize a lot easier with people outside of my face for me as an adult i really advocate harmonizing and i love cultural diversity and I like meeting people of different backgrounds whether it's culturally religiously or racially I think that where I am now I'm very very comfortable where I am now I'm very proud to be an Australian I'm very proud to be an Australian South African I'm very proud to be a Muslim I wear the hijab for that purpose because I would like to represent Islam in mainstream community and I'm very very happy when people walk up to me and ask me questions about you know why do you wear the veil or is it true that Islam women are oppressed and things like that I'm very very happy when they ask me Things because I'm very happy to explain. 20, 20,
3: Reality was more startling than fiction in the political life of Queensland during that era.
9: Mr Peterson, today is the anniversary of the Hawke government. What do you think of their first year in government? Well, I
5: am bitterly disappointed of all the broken promises in that election. As I said, there was a lot of deceit and deception, obviously because he promised 500,000 new jobs, lower taxes, lower petrol prices. We haven't got our five patrol boats and three Fokker friendships to patrol the north, or the support for the tourist industry that that he promised.
9: Do you agree with Hawke's statements that over the last year Australia's been a much more cohesive nation than No, yes? I do
5: not. It, it's uh, He's been able to, on uh, through the media and so on, to... Um, create the image that everybody's happy but i have never yet i can't find the man who likes paying all these high taxes i don't like the man i can't find very many people who support a lot of this legislation that they're bringing in
9: but mr peterson he's got a 73 percent popularity yeah but
5: that doesn't mean anything as far as what his performance is he's he's uh, very good on tv he's um, very pleasant and uh, when it comes to that part of it but what goes on in parliament in the acts that they brought in in so many directions he's still pursuing foreign policies that that fight in us. are supporting um, I, I had an awful battle on health with but uh, mr arafat mr Hawke talks about funding him on a health for health funds and you mark my words that, that, that'll come into being ultimately the uh these people that are, that have acted as terrorists around the around the world you find in Vietnam. He wants to support the communists there, that hardcore communist, and uh, all these sorts of things. The nuclear ship, the invincible, they won't even support their own allies.
9: How do you feel about Hawke's recently announced plan to hold an early election probably next week Well, I think that's
5: absolutely hypocritical. He criticized Hugo Fraser, condemned him, and so on. Why does he want another election? Why have we got to spend another 20-odd million or whatever it is on referendums and and another election.
9: Do you think he'll succeed in reducing personal income taxes?
5: Well, if he reduces those, he'll double it by taking it in other areas like the introduction of death duties and gift duties, capital gains tax. You mark my words. We are a
2: government. We are a party. With strong traditions as adopted by great figures such as T.J. Ryan, John Churton and Ben Chifley. We are concerned with social justice. We take the view that we have a national and a natural obligation to help the disadvantaged in our community to realise the aspirations for their own personal development which the more privileged take as a matter of course. Unlike the opposition, this Labor government does not.
3: Uh, yes
5: I did yeah what did you think of it I wasn't impressed why not well <laughs> I just don't think I think it's the same as what he's he said all along it's you know it's, it wasn't you know, it wasn't anything new at all and it wasn't anything to try and uh, you know come people what they didn't already know about you know what he's on about. Along the same lines, it's, uh, you know, Peacock could have got up, that <laughs> could have got up, any Conservative could have got up and said that, you know, the same thing, but probably with more uh, right-wing, along more, more wrong right-wing lines.
3: I just think he's basically right-wing. No nuclear
1: bases. No nuclear bombs.
6: What did, what did you think of the picket outside on your way through? Well, I think the international socialists are really quite a harmless bunch of ratbags, and, and they voice the ideas of the old-fashioned left, which will never, ever be popular in this
9: country. And, and really, I can't understand why the police harass them so much, because they're just so harmless and innocuous. And what about the federal government's recent decision to refuse entry visas to two South African well, officials?
5: Well, again, as I said yesterday, that's absolutely scandalous. You will let in terrorist groups, like the I.R.O., uh, the uh, the PLO and the I I R A, and the SWAPO, and uh, he lets them come in to set up headquarters here. Something that staggers me every time I think about it. We have th- to become a base from which they can operate with immunity.
9: But don't you think it's good that the federal government's taking a firm stand against apartheid? It, but they are creating it here at an alarming rate
5: themselves. They are creating apartheid here by the way that they are... Uh, are discriminating against the white people, they discriminate against us to an alarming degree. Where we almost feel that you know, made to feel, or people are made to feel, or tried to make them feel uh, that they, you know, they're here on privilege. This land belongs to a certain group of Milton. Uh, Men and women representing the Aboriginals.
9: But many critics of the Queensland government say that Queensland has created an apartheid system through its and treatment I'll of look, Aboriginal people.
5: And, uh, look, thank you very much for your talk. I, yeah, I know it's useless talking to you because you don't uh, support me and the thoughts, and I never get what you call a true representation. So I've given you enough now to keep you going today. Okay. Thank you for that. I heard it on the radio.
1: Back in 1988, all those talking politicians. Words are easy, words are cheap, much cheaper than our priceless land. My promises can disappear just like writing in the sun. Free, yeah, free now. Free me now. The now the majority, the majority, the majority, the majority, the majority, the planting of the union debt never changed our law at all. Now the rivers run their course, separated for so long. I'm dreaming of a brighter day when our waters will be won Come on, free!
3: Bonn and Berlin, a generation of surreal and repressive regimes, was coming to an end by the end of the 1980s. In the next story, we hear the voices of people who have lived in Australia for years now, but grew up in Germany while it was still divided into East and West. The fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 was a standstill moment for people following the political events of the 1980s. The reunification of the repressive Eastern Berlin with the egalitarian West Berlin became emblematic of the failure of communism in the West.
10: I think about the feeling I've developed for the former German Democratic Republic. It is a country which no longer exists, but here I am on a train hurtling through it. It's tumbled down houses and bewildered people. This feeling needs a stickle-brick word. I can only describe it as horror romance. It's a dumb feeling, but I don't want to shake it. The romance comes from the dream of a better world the German communists wanted to build out of the ashes of the Nazi past. From each according to his abilities, to each according to his needs the horror comes from what they did in his name east germany has disappeared but its remains are still at the site i first visited in leipzig in 1994 nearly 5 years after the wall fell in november 1989 east germany still felt like a secret wall in garden a place lost in time it wouldn't have surprised me if things had tasted different here. Apples like pears, say, or wine like blood. Leipzig was the hub of what everyone now calls die Wende, the turning point. The Wende was the peaceful revolution against the communist dictatorship in East Germany, the only successful revolution in German history. Leipzig was the start and the heart of it. Now, two years later, I'm on my way back. The Stasi was the internal army by which the government kept control. Its job was to know everything about everyone, using any means it chose. It knew who your visitors were, it knew whom you telephoned, and it knew if your wife stepped around. It was a bureaucracy metastasized through East German society, overt and covert. There was someone reporting to the Stasi on their fellows and friends in every school, every factory, every apartment block, every pub. Obsessed with detail, the Stasi entirely failed to predict the end of communism, and with it the end of the country. Between 1989 and 1990 it was turned inside out. Stalinist spy unit one day, museum the next, in its 40 years. The firm generated the equivalent of all records in German history since the Middle Ages. Laid out upright and end-to-end, the files the Stasi kept on the countrymen and women would form a line 180 kilometers long. My favorites were the pictures of protesters occupying the building on 4 December 1989, squatting in the corridors with a surprise still on their faces as if half expecting to be asked to leave. As they entered the building, the Stasi guards had asked to see the demonstrators' ID cards, in a strange parody of the control they were, at that very moment losing. The demonstrators, in shock, obediently pulled the cards from the wallets, then they seized the building. At Bornholmer Bridge, the border ran, in theory, along the space between the tracks. In other places in Berlin, the border, and with it the wall, cut a strange wound through the city. The wall went through houses, along streets, along waterways, and sliced underground train lines to pieces. Here, instead of cutting the train line, the East German built most of the wall's fortifications in front of the train line on the eastern side letting the eastern trains run through to the furthest wall at the end of the death strip. The Bornholm Bridge was about 150 meters away. Between her and the west there was a wire mesh fence, a petrol strip, a barbed wire fence, a 20 meter wide asphalt street for the personnel carriers and a footpath. Relations between people were conditioned by the fact that one or other of you could be one of them. Everyone suspected everyone else, and the mistrust this spread was the foundation of social existence. Miriam could have been denounced by the man for having asked a question about the border and admitting she was thinking of going over, and she could have denounced him in turn for offering to show her how. I see through a window... Into a room where several men and women sit, each at their own small table. They look at pink and dun-colored manila folders and take notes. What mysteries are being solved? Why they didn't get into university? Or why they couldn't find a job? Or which friend told them about the forbidden Solzhenzelsen in their bookcase? The names of third parties mentioned in the files are crossed out with fat black markers, so other people's secrets are not revealed. That Uncle Frank was unfaithful to his wife, that the neighbor was a lush. But you are entitled to know the real names of the Stasi officers and the informers who spied on you. For the moments that I stand there, at least, no one is crying or punching the wall. The group is standing around a model of the complex, as the guide tells them what the demonstrators found here on the evening of 15th January 1990, when they finally got inside. She says there was an internal supermarket with delicacies unavailable anywhere else in the country. There was a hairdresser with rows of orange helmet-like dryers for all those bristle cuts. There was a shoemaker and, of course, a locksmith. She explains that the neighboring building, the archive, was invisible from outside the complex, and a copper-lined room had been planned for it to keep information safe from satellite surveillance. She says Berliners used to refer to this place as the House of 1000 Eyes. Mielke and Honecker grew up fighting the real evil of Nazism. And they kept on fighting the West, which they saw as Nazism's successor for 45 years after the war ended. They had to, as a Soviet satellite state, end the Eastern bloc's bulwark against the West. But in East Germany, they did so more thoroughly and with more pedantic enthusiasm than the Poles, the Hungarians, the Czechs, or the Russians themselves. They never wanted to stop. When Mikhail Gorbachev came to power in the Soviet Union in 1985, he implemented the policies of perestroika, economic reform, and glasnost, openness of speech. In June 1988, he declared a principle of freedom of choice for governments within the Eastern Bloc and renounced the use of Soviet military force to prop them up. Without Soviet backup to quash popular dissent, as there had been at the workers' uprising in Berlin in 1953, in Hungary in 1956 and in Prague in 1968, the GDR regime could not survive. The options were change or civil war. Documents found after the wall fell reveal meticulous plans current throughout the 1980s For the surveillance, arrest and incarceration of 85,939 East Germans, listed by name. On day X, the day a crisis, any crisis was declared. Stasi officers in the 211 local branches were to open sealed envelopes containing the lists of the people in the area to be arrested. In August, the Hungarians cut the barbed wire at their border with Austria, creating the first hole in the Eastern Bloc. Thousands of East Germans flocked there and ran, crying with relief and anger across the border. Thousands more traveled to the West German embassies in Prague and Warsaw and set up camp, creating a diplomatic nightmare in German-German relations. Finally, the regime agreed to let them out, on condition that the train taking them to, the, to West Germany, traveled through the GDR. Honecker hoped to humiliate the expellers by confiscating their ID papers. And he wanted them to fear, as they did, that he would stop the trains and arrest the passengers. Honecker's plans backfired. The people on the trains ripped up their ID papers with tears of joy. Thousands flocked to the stations to see if they could climb on board and to cheer on their compatriots. In early October, Leipzig was at a flashpoint. Petrol station attendants were refusing to refill police vehicles. The children of servicemen were being barred from crashes. Those who worked in the centre of town near the Nikolaikirche were sent home early. Hospitals called for more blood. People made their wills and said things they wanted their children to remember before going out to demonstrations. But things were already too far gone. Instead of incarcerating the people, the Stasi, hiding in their buildings, locked themselves up. In the regional offices, they had 60,000 pistols, more than 30,000 machine guns, hand grenades, sharpshooters, rifles, anti-tank guns and tear gas. Fears of lynching ran high. The old man... On the podium wore light grey suits studded with medals. Mikhail Gorbachev stood next to Honecker, but he looked uncomfortable among the much older Germans. He had come to tell them it was over, to convince the leadership to adopt his reformist policies. He had spoken openly about the dangers of not responding to reality. He pointedly told the Politburo that life punishes those who come too late. Honika and Milke ignored him just as they ignored the crowds when they chanted Gobi help us, Gobi help us. We are not rowdies, we are the people, and the constant, constant call of no violence. From that night on the demonstrations grew, footage of them was smuggled to the west, and Leipzig came to be known as a city of heroes. <laughs>
3: You've been listening to Gunther read from Edward Hollis's book, The Secret Lives of Buildings.
0: the streets leading down to the main road to Tiananmen Square, furious people stared in disbelief at the glow in the sky, listening to the sound of shots. Heading down the road was a hazardous business, but hundreds of people cheered as buses were set alight and army trucks caught fire too. They yelled and shouted, and then as troop lorries were seen moving down the road, there was gunfire from those lorries. troops have been firing indiscriminately, but still there are thousands of people on the streets who will not move back. There was confusion and despair among those who could hardly credit that their own army was firing wildly at them. Many were bystanders, perhaps naive about the savagery of the situation. Indeed, it was hard at times to grasp that this army was launching into an unarmed civilian population as if charging into battle. In
3: 1989, I was living in Sydney, which is a large population of Chinese expatriates. On the day of June the 4th, I disembarked from a Wynyard train to find the centre of town filled with harried Chinese people carrying placards and rushing towards town hall. We didn't have mobile phones or the constant connectivity that we have today, so I couldn't look at Twitter and find out what was going on. So I stopped one of them to ask what had happened. That was the day of the Tiananmen Massacre. In Australia, the radicalism of the 1970s had revolutionised domestic law and politics in many respects. For many international visitors, Australia offered unprecedented freedom in customs and politics. And in the case of Australian responses to the Tiananmen Massacre, it also offered safety and time. On the 27th of June 1989, the Hawke government granted Chinese nationals who were in Australia at the time of Beijing's Tiananmen Square incident temporary residence for four years under a special category permit. There were about 20,000 people in this category in Australia in 1990. In all, more than 42,000 Chinese students were granted permanent visas by the Labour government in the aftermath of Tiananmen. Sydney was the final destination for most of those who settled in Australia as part of the post-Tiananmen Chinese migration. The students subsequently brought in large numbers of family, which amounted to the biggest wave of Chinese migration since the gold rush of the 1850s. So who were those students? According to the Australian People, a book edited by Dr James Jupp from the Centre for Immigration and Multicultural Studies at the Australian National University, they were mostly men in their mid-twenties to mid-thirties with education levels higher than the general Australian population. Despite this, the 1996 census recorded that 46% of settlers from mainland China either did not speak English or did not speak it well, and despite their qualifications, they were underrepresented in professional and semi-professional occupations. Bolker's claims the 1993 decision helped reverse the history of discrimination against Asians in our migration program and that it was part of the Hawke and Keating government's open and inclusive global social and economic agenda. So why were the students scared of returning to Beijing? If you go by the familiar account in the short space of 30 years, China ruled by politics has become a China where money is king and the turning point was the Tiananmen incident of 1989. Stirred by the death that April of the reformed-minded Hu Yaobang, college students in Beijing poured out of their campuses to gather in Tiananmen Square, demanding democratic freedoms and denouncing official corruption. Because of the hard line the government took in refusing to engage in a dialogue, by mid-May the students began a hunger strike in the square, and the locals marched in the streets to support them. Not all Beijing residents were interested in democratic freedoms, For many, it was an attack on profiteering by officials that drew them into the movement in such huge numbers. At that time, Deng Xiaoping's opening up policies had started their 11th year, and although the reforms had triggered price increases, the economy was growing steadily and the standard of living was rising. According to Chinese writer Yu Hao, In the spring of 1989, Beijing was an anarchist heaven. The police had suddenly disappeared from the streets, and students and locals took on police duties in their place. A common purpose and shared aspirations put a police-free city in perfect order. You could take the subway or a bus for free, and everyone was smiling at one another. Barriers down. Hard-nosed street vendors were now handing out free refreshments to the protesters. Students who had poured into Beijing from other parts of the country would stand in the square, or on a street corner, giving speeches day after day until their throats grew hoarse and they lost their voices. This is Chinese writer Yu Hao talking. For young people like me, the student protests seemed long and protracted like a marathon, but I could not imagine they would end. In the early morning of the 4th of June, the news started coming over the radio that the army was in Tiananmen Square.
0: From Tiananmen Square, the sound of gunfire sounded like a battle, but it was one-sided. A line of soldiers was strung out facing a huge crowd. The air was filled with shouts of fascists, stop killing. We were in the line facing the troops. They were about 250 yards away. Young people were singing the Internationale to a background of gunfire. In the streets, many came up to us, shaking with anger and disbelief and fear. Many were terrified, saying there would be retribution. There was not one voice on the streets which did not express despair and rage. Coming up next,
3: you'll hear from historian James Waghorn from the history unit of Melbourne University. Dr James Waghorn spoke with Radio and Colour's Stephen Rigal about some of the students who came on exchange to Australia from South and Southeast Asia. He came on exchange to Australia from China and Southeast Asia.
2: Hawke is, uh, is often presented as someone who is, a, uh, is, is an emotional figure, but he had a long standing interest in international students. Uh, when he was Student Guild President uh, at uh, UWA, University of Western Australia, in the 1950s, he is the one who launches an appeal to set up an international house uh, at UWA. I mean, the, the appeal ultimately. Failed, but this is something that Hawke had always had an interest in.
4: When did uh, it become a, a big thing for students to, to be coming over to Australia? When did the numbers start getting big, and how did the place of origin change over over time?
2: The presence of large numbers of international students is something that takes place around World War Two, and uh, partic- particularly after World War Two, as shipping opens up and, and people are able to travel a bit more. They come to Australia and they are, people remark upon the, the numbers of these international students. Throughout the 1950s, the international students comprise a very large proportion, a little bit less than half of people of Asian origin living in Australia. Throughout the 1950s as well, there is the uh, advent of the Colombo Plan, which is a well, an international agreement. Uh, aimed to uh, provide aid to Asian countries. Part of that is sending people over to Asian countries to offer advice and uh, and help them to develop their countries. But also it involves sponsoring students to come to Australia. So you have students in Australia, uh, the, the, the larger part of them always were private students who paid their own way and supported themselves. But a small proportion of them are, are come under a government uh, imprimatur which I think is very significant so we welcome international students here as well by as part of as something that our nation is, is hoping to do and uh, we are not welcoming obviously people from communist countries so though into the 1980s we have more people coming from mainland China you come to uh, Australia you get a, an internationally recognized education that may not be available in your home country you gain uh, a cultural exchange, you learn how to speak
7: English. I watched TV when I arrived in Australia. I was very shocked and surprised by the events at Tiananmen Square, so I decided to stay in Australia.
2: The Chow family moved to Melbourne's southeastern suburbs. Daughter Weza was only seven at the time, and although our memories of the transition are limited, the family's experience served as an important lesson
3: it made me really appreciate what we have in Australia Um, and yes there are issues but at the same time we we're very lucky in this country where we can have those political debates without fear of life. In 1979 the Fraser government introduced a refugee quota that saw 100,000 Vietnamese refugees settle in Australia through the 1980s. This humanitarian policy heralded the end of the White Australia policy in a political if not social sense. With multiculturalism becoming an accepted part of the social fabric in many sectors, it was increasingly incorporated into government policy in recognition of Australia's inability to isolate itself from the rest of the world. It also founded a new paradigm of what it means to be Australian that had a solid basis in human rights and a fair go. And that became an ideal to strive for, if not a common practice in reality.
1: For some stars to show Try so hard not to remember When all
3: And that's a highly selective account of political history in the 1990s. You've been listening to episode 10 of Radio in Colour, a special documentary series to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Brisbane's Community Radio 4ZZZ. We acknowledge the generous support of the Community Broadcasting Fund and of our partners in this production team. Radio in Colour is made by a team of young producers from 15 different countries. This episode of Radio in Colour was recorded at the Edge Studios in the State Library of Queensland as well as at Radio 4 B and 4ZZZ. This show is produced by Carolina Caliaba, Stephen Regal and Kim Stewart. Ni adpayibi is our sound engineer and Blair Martin is our trainer. My name is Kim Stewart. Special thanks to our guests today, James Waghorn, and Voice Talent by Gunter. You can listen back to our stories on the 4Z website, 4 zzzfmorgau and you can also follow us on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.